Hello and welcome to Since the World's Been Turning. This podcast series is a journey through history, one guided by the lyrics of Billy Joel's song, We Didn't Start the Fire. This time round, we're exploring the life and work of movie star, fashion icon, and eventual royal, the Princess of Monaco herself, Grace Kelly. Setting new expectations of poise and, no pun intended, grace in America after the events of the Second World War, Grace Kelly would define the generation of post-affluence. But what was her inner life like? How did she navigate her short but explosive career in Hollywood? And what did she leave as her legacy in the Principality of Monaco? Oscar night, 1955. Judy Garland has given arguably the performance of the decade in A Star is Born. Playing the troubled wife of an actor whose career is falling apart due to addiction, the line between fiction and fact has been blurring in the press. Judy is publicly battling with her own substance issues, pill dependencies pushed on her by studio heads dating back to her early overworked days as a child actor. Of course, in the public eye, she is the one to blame for this. She's garnered a reputation of being impossible to work with, out of control, and rude. Yet the performance is so unarguably fantastic that there isn't the slightest doubt in people's minds that this year she's going to finally win the Best Actress Oscar anyway. Hospital-bound due to an overdose, the press are so sure that she has it in the bag that they send a camera crew up to her room. Still, Judy's competition isn't anything to scoff at. Dorothy Dandridge is the first black woman to be nominated for Best Actress through her work in Carmen Jones. Audrey Hepburn, always a heavyweight, has had yet another hit this year with Sabrina. Jane Wyman is beginning one of Hollywood's most fruitful collaborations with her first film with Douglas Sirk, Magnificent Obsession. Yet, oddly enough, the real threat to the crown is a newcomer. Having only been in Hollywood for just over two years, Grace Kelly has already earned her second Oscar nomination. She's come off a ridiculously fruitful year, starring in two different Hitchcock hits and being nominated for a third film, The Country Girl. She is the new big name, so much so that Bob Hope presents an honorary award in his opening monologue to all the producers who were brave enough to make a film without Grace Kelly in it. The Country Girl is a critically acclaimed play adaptation, ironically also about a wife struggling with a husband with substance abuse issues. Grace has fought hard to get the role, negotiating a lapse from her contract with MGM in order to star in this for Paramount. She's spectacular in it, and her performance is miles away from her usual glamorous movie star roles. But there isn't any real doubt which of these two Irish-American stars gave the better performance this year. When the award is read out, and it's revealed that Grace Kelly has pulled off the upset, the surprise is palpable. The press have to work backwards frantically to try and figure out just how this happened. How did she get there? The answer is simple. The Oscars is Hollywood voting for Hollywood. 
Judy Garland, arguably through no fault of her own, had pissed a few too many people off. But Grace Kelly? Without undermining her immense talent as an actor, it could be said that her greatest talent was the ability to present complete and total class, to push for herself and her career while simultaneously stepping on no toes at all. Able to observe, mimic, and ultimately dictate the trends and looks of high society in the way that only someone who's a slight outsider can, Grace Kelly was the most loved person in Hollywood that night. Her speech was short and to the point. The thrill of this moment keeps me from saying what I really feel. I can only say thank you with all my heart to all who made this possible for me. Thank you. On November 12th, 1929, Grace Kelly is born into wealth and is very quickly taught that she needs to fight for acceptance in high society. Historian, author, and royal commentator Carolyn Harris describes Grace's family for us. Well, she was the third of the four children of Jack Kelly and Margaret Major, and her parents uh, were both uh, very athletic, ambitious people. Um, her father came from an Irish-American family, and he presented himself very much as the American dream, rags to riches. He'd started out as a bricklayer and then had built up a very successful construction company company. And he was also very passionately interested in rowing. And he applied uh, to row at the Henley Regatta in the United Kingdom in 1919. And he was turned away. And he saw that as a comment on that he was Irish American and had worked as a bricklayer, that he was seen as just not good enough for the regatta. But he was part of the American Olympic rowing team in 1920 in Antwerp and received a gold medal medal in the in the single and the, the double sculling at the Olympics and managed to beat one of those Henley Regatta competitors. So he saw that as really, you know, overcoming what he perceived as some of the snobbery that he had faced in his rowing career. He also ran for uh, mayor of Philadelphia unsuccessfully. So he was a very big, larger than life figure. Um, her mother as well was from a German American family, and she'd gone to university and become a physical education teacher. So this was a family that was very focused on sports and athletics and competition and winning. Um, her brother, uh, Grace's brother, uh, followed in the uh, father's footsteps and also took up rowing and went to the Olympics. Both of her sisters were swimmers. Now, Grace did play tennis. She played some field hockey in school, but she viewed these as leisure activities. She didn't have that competitive spirit of the rest of her family. She wore glasses. She had childhood asthma. And so she had moments where her father would say, what's Grace sniveling about now when she had all these coughs and colds as a child? So she very much wanted to please her parents, but in many ways she felt like she was different from the rest of her family that was so focused on competition. She found role models elsewhere in her extended family. Her uncle, 
uh, George Kelly was a Pulitzer Prize winning playwright. She was named for a, a, a late um, aunt who had, had been pursuing an acting career. There was another uncle involved in vaudeville. So elsewhere in her extended family, there were people involved in the arts. And this eventually led um, to uh, her deciding to to move to New York from Philadelphia and to go, go to the, the and to go to the American Academy of the Dramatic Arts there. Of course, there are conditions placed on what Grace's career can look like. Hollywood, while the home of glamour, is also the home of scandal and hedonism, something the Kelly family can't stand for. So, steps must be taken to ensure she doesn't lose any face in New York. She moves into the Barbizon Hotel, a residence exclusively for women, where men aren't allowed past the front door. Excelling in her training, Grace quickly launches into her career. Carolyn Harris explains. She tried to make a name for herself on the stage and found that she wasn't necessarily getting the recognition that she wanted. She wasn't getting uh, the, the kinds of attention in reviews. So she performed in some local playhouses and you know, back in Philadelphia at various times. She did have some connections through um, her uncle, uh, the, the Pulitzer Prize winning playwright, George Kelly, that opened a few doors for her. But she didn't have a lot of success on Broadway, though she would continue um, it, and it would be part of her contracts later in her career to be able to pursue stage acting as well. It was something that was a very strong uh, interest for her, but she found she had much more success in television. In the 1950s, there was a lot of demand um, for content for television, and a lot of this content was being adapted from stage plays. So if you had some Broadway experience, this was a way that, that you could get into the industry. So she performed in a lot of early soap operas, adaptations of plays. There's been speculation that she may have been in something from, from 60 to 100 different uh, television specials at various times or appearances in series. And she found this was very good discipline in terms of learning lines, preparing very quickly for all sorts of different roles. So it certainly helped with her career. But at that time, television was in its infancy in many ways and was considered very much inferior to appearing in motion pictures. This is long before the era of prestige television that was not seen as as the best career to be in. So, but some of these early television appearances led to opportunities uh, to appear in films. And something that she was very reluctant to take on was one of these very strict studio contracts. A lot of actresses of her time to sign up for these contracts for MGM, for instance, where the studio essentially owned you for seven years and would decide what color your hair was going to be and which uh, films you were going to be in and you would be resident in Hollywood and she wanted to remain in New York and have opportunities to appear on the stage. So initially um, for her early uh, film appearances of in in uh, 14 hours and high noon 
uh, she, she pursued these opportunities independently. So she was in a much stronger negotiating position when she did sign a contract with MGM for Mogambo, her, uh, her uh, film with Clark Gable and Ava Gardner. And so she was able to have incorporated into her contract, even though the pay wasn't particularly high, she was able to remain in New York. She was able to spend time on the stage and pursue opportunities for stage plays as well. So she had some very good advice uh, from her uncle advising her not to simply leap into a Hollywood contract, but to be in a position where she would be able to negotiate. She makes the right call signing with the studio, however. Mogambo was more than a minor success, netting her an Academy Award nomination and helping land her a role with one of the most commercially and critically lauded filmmakers of the time, Alfred Hitchcock. Carolyn Harris describes their working relationship. She viewed Alfred Hitchcock as a professional mentor, and Alfred Hitchcock viewed Grace Kelly as his protege. So they had a very strong working relationship, and she was the type of actress that he found very interesting, someone whose public image was very demure, you know, the, the white gloves, the reserved manner, the very proper way of dressing and presenting herself, but that exterior masking a very passionate interior. There were some affairs with her, uh, her leading men over the course of some of the films that she was involved in. So Alfred Hitchcock found her interesting, that she seemed like a very contradictory figure, that someone who was Roman Catholic and very proper and elegant, and yet also had this very passionate side as well. So Hitchcock commented that Grace Kelly's apparent frigidity was like a mountain covered with snow, but that mountain was a volcano. So he thought that she was a very interesting person. And it's and in some of his movies as well, he liked to be able to place her in scenes where she was, you know, very ladylike, but there was also some suggestive dialogue there as well that he liked to play up that multifaceted image. The first film she stars in for Hitchcock, Dial M for Murder, proves to be so successful that he immediately invites her to co-star in his follow-up, Rear Window. Following this, she quickly arrives at her third film of the year, The Country Girl, and with it, to Judy Garland's dismay, her Academy Award. Pulling off the upset, she's at the top of the world, arguably the biggest star of the time. She only has down to go from here. Carolyn Harris describes her impact on culture and fashion. Well, she was very popular uh, because she had this very um, elegant image and many uh, women emulated that in the early 1950s, that, that this was an, uh, an era of the very, you know, the full skirts and these very elegant fashions coming into play. Um, her favorite handbag became known as the Kelly bag. So she definitely contributed to some of these early 1950s fashion trends 
towards the towards these full skirts, very elegant, um, demure fashions. There's a big transition from the 1940s when there had been more utility wear and 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 women dressing more practically to work in munitions factories during the Second World War. The early 1950s saw this revival of a very of, of these very you know, you know tiny waist, big skirts. The the this very um, feminine tailoring that came into fashion at that time. And she was also seen as a successor to Ingrid Bergman, who had been such a success in the 1940s and had appeared in, in Hitchcock films as well. So she was seen as following in the, this Hollywood tradition. Where to go next is the big question on Grace's mind. Roles for older actresses are rare in the 1950s, to say the least. And you don't have to be very old at all to be classified as one by Hollywood. So when Grace rides her Oscar hype to the Cannes Film Festival in 1954, she has other things on her mind. Carolyn Harris describes Grace's fateful meeting. They met at the Cannes Film Festival in 1955. She had just received the Best Actress Oscar for The Country Girl. So she was part of the American delegation to the film festival. And while she was there, Paris Match wanted to do a photo shoot and suggested that she could go to Monaco. And, uh, and the photo shoot could be there with the prince in this very regal setting. And so she agreed to do this photo shoot. And on the day of the photo shoot, everything went wrong. There was a labor strike in France at the time. The electrical workers went on strike. So the power at her hotel was shut off. So she'd washed her hair and had no way of drying her hair. And her dresses were all rumpled in, in her suitcase. There was no way of ironing her clothes. So she was about to meet a prince and have a Paris match photo shoot. And everything seemed to be going wrong. So she put her wet hair up in an updo and then arranged some artificial flowers in a kind of makeshift fascinator as she'd been told at the last minute she needed to have a hat if she was meeting the prince. And then found the one reasonably unrumpled dress. It was a black dress with red and green flowers that was not one of her favorites. She thought she looked a bit like a pear uh, wearing that. So she was definitely not dressed and presenting herself the way uh, she had planned uh, for this meeting. She hoped her hair would dry in the car as it was quite warm in the French Riviera. And then she traveled to this photo shoot and Prince Renier was late and she got a tour of the state apartments while she was waiting for his arrival. And then he finally arrived and they walked around the palace zoo. Um, he was a great animal lover and had a lot of different animals in his menagerie. And that was something they had in common. They had both been shy children. They found that, and even in their public roles, they both found dealing with the press could be quite difficult at times. And, and so they found they had this rapport and and they began a correspondence after this photo shoot that she was asked what she thought of the prince. And she said, well, he's very charming. But as far as the wider world knew, there hadn't been further contact. But behind the scenes, they had written to one another. And Renier could be quite charming and funny, especially in this context of writing back and forth. And so they developed very strong rapport. And there were a number of other factors that also contributed to the 
development of a relationship. His chaplain uh, was Irish American, Francis Tucker, and very much thought Grace Kelly was an impressive example of, uh, of an Irish American Roman Catholic who was very elegant and dignified and would be perfect in this particular role. And there were some family friends of the Kelly family who had been in Monaco and really wanted to go to the Red Cross ball and confidently contacted the prince asking if they could have tickets and he arranged them to have tickets in a very friendly Philadelphia way. They said, well, if you're ever in town, come stay with us. So he found he sort of had an invitation to visit uh, Philadelphia. So he ultimately uh, visited over Christmas and they got to know each other over that time. But this was still only their second meeting. And that was when he proposed and they decided to get married. And there was immediately a media frenzy as much as the, the couple were eager to keep this more private. There were a lot of questions from the press. There was a photo call with Grace's parents and with the newly engaged couple. And the big question was, would she continue to act in films? And it was made very clear that as she was becoming the Princess of Monaco, that would not be possible. So as she'd been at the Cannes Film Festival, there were questions, will she be in French films? Will she be continuing her acting career? But it was very clear that she was stepping into this new role as the Princess of Monaco, um, her husband-to-be had very big plans for the principality. Monaco had become known as a sunny place for shady people, and the Prince of Monaco wanted to change that. He wanted to attract American tourists and business investments. He wanted Monaco to be known for more than the casino at Monte Carlo. And so Grace Kelly, as Princess of Monaco, would have a full-time job just representing the principality and being involved in the very wide range of charity work that was expected of a uh, of a, a princess of monaco prince rainier of monaco is just the change grace has been looking for he's also finally a man she can take home to her parents if being a movie star wasn't enough to earn her father's respect surely this would prove the point Grace Kelly's last film, High Society, releases in 1956, the same year she marries Prince Rainier. The royal wedding serves as a symbol, a public transition between Grace Kelly, movie star, and Princess Grace of Monaco. Carolyn Harris elaborates. Well, the wedding itself was very much stage managed by MGM. MGM was not pleased that she was leaving her contract at the time that she did. So they gave her the costumes from high society as part of her trousseau. There was an MGM costume designer who designed her wedding dress with the lace overlay that's been so influential to subsequent royal wedding dresses. We think of Prince William marrying Catherine Middleton in 2011, for example, there was a lace overlay to uh, Catherine Middleton's dress as well. So there was a lot of influence on subsequent royal wedding dresses from uh, Grace Kelly's dress. And then MGM had the exclusive rights to film the ceremony. And this was a two-day ceremony as Monaco required a civil ceremony and then a religious ceremony. So this was one of the earliest big television media events 
where there were more journalists present than perhaps there was news to cover. Something like 1,600 journalists descended on tiny Monaco for this wedding. And, and they were eager to not simply see uh, the the Grimaldi family, the princely family of Monaco and their guests, but all the film stars who would be attending, the fact that Ava Gardner was there, but Frank Sinatra did not attend, that that attracted a lot of media coverage. You know, you know there was Gary Cooper, another one of her co-stars. So there was coverage on many different levels. This was a princely wedding. It was putting Monaco on the map, but also there were going to be all these film stars present. And both Rennie and Grace found it to be a challenge to manage the media as there simply wasn't enough for all of these journalists to do. And this was very much the early days of kind of moment by moment coverage of an event uh, of this kind. And so Rennie would later reminisce about your journalist stepping in front of his car and, 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 and wanting to speak to it. It felt as though they had no privacy uh, during this time. The wedding and her entrance into the royal world presents a real challenge to Grace and her impeccable manners. She has to adapt quickly and find a way to carve herself out a place in Monaco's elite. Having made the choice to leave the craft that has defined her life so far, she has no choice but to find something else to fill the void. Carolyn Harris talks about this. She threw herself into charity work in Monaco, at the Princess Grace Hospital, for example, the, the annual Red Cross Ball. And she also played a diplomatic role. Uh, Monaco had a difficult relationship with France at that time. In the 19th century, Monaco had lost a lot of its territory to France. And Charles de Gaulle uh, was concerned that um, that French businesses were setting up in Monaco to avoid paying taxes in France. And so there were real concerns that Monaco could be absorbed into France and the and the presence of Grace Kelly and all of this media coverage of her wedding really put Monaco on the map. So negotiations between France and Monaco attracted international attention in a way that it, it it wouldn't necessarily have done in the wider world if it hadn't been for Grace's presence. So there were these, these diplomatic dinners, a meeting with uh, French President Charles de Gaulle, and eventually a, a France and Monaco treaty was ironed out uh, where French businesses still had to pay French taxes, even if they were uh, based in Monaco. And so there were treaty negotiations to ensure uh, Monaco's continued uh, survival. Managing to make an immense difference in Monaco's politics is no easy feat, as Grace remains swarmed on all sides by the press. Thinking that she'd had it bad enough as a movie star... Grace learns that fending off the paparazzi becomes a whole lot more difficult as a member of the monarchy, and is exacerbated even further when you have children. Through this, much like Princess Diana, Grace Kelly's story will run the risk of being defined by her untimely death. While it pales in comparison to the importance and complexity of what she achieved in life, her passing at 52 is as significant as it is heartbreaking and is discussed with respect by Carolyn Harris here. Well, she was driving 
uh, with her, uh, her daughter, Stephanie, who was 17 at that time, and came up to one of these hairpin turns that are now very clearly signposted, but at the time, there wasn't as much of a barrier there, and the car went off the road, and Stephanie was thrown from the car. She had some injuries and survived, uh, but Grace did not, and there were some delays. The Princess Grace Hospital at that time didn't have all of the most modern equipment the CT scanner, for instance, it took some time to be able to have all these tests run, but it became clear that she'd had a stroke and had briefly blacked out, and this was likely the reason why she'd lost control of the car, and then her injuries in the car accident had caused extensive internal bleeding, so she would not uh, wake up from the coma. So Renier and her two older children, Caroline and Albert, had to make the very difficult decision uh, to turn off life support that there simply wasn't any hope with the extent of the injuries um, that she had suffered. And there was a widespread mourning as there was for Diana. This was a very popular and well-known film star who'd gone on to this second career as Princess of Monaco. And there was very strong royal presence, including Diana, Princess of Wales. Uh, at her funeral. And as with uh, Diana's own death in a car accident in 1997, there was all sorts of discussion and debate as to whether the public knew the official story. There was speculation. What if Stephanie had been driving the car? But that's seems not to have been the case that you had to be 18 in order to uh, drive in France and Monaco at that time. Stephanie was 17. Her parents did let her practice driving on their estates, but not on the public road where there were uh, hairpin turns of that kind. And so Stephanie, at the age of only 17, was having to deal with those kinds of rumors when she was already I mean, very devastating that she had been there in the car at the time of her mother's death. So as with Diana, there was a lot of speculation about the car crash was the official story the same as as what had happened. And this was very difficult, particularly for Princess Stephanie to be in the center of all of that um, of all of that media speculation and coverage. Today, when we think of the fashion of the opulent 50s, of Hollywood grandeur and glamour, and of what it means to be a modern royal, we think of Grace Kelly. Through all sorts of mentions, be it in Madonna's music videos, in reference to Diana and Meghan Markle, or even as the title of Mika's karaoke classic, Princess Grace lives on in popular culture. Ultimately, she'll be remembered by her principality, her family, and the world as someone of impeccable class. Thanks for listening to Since the World's Been Turning. I'm Robin Harrison. Special thanks to Carolyn Harris for her expertise. You can find Carolyn's numerous books on royal history online. Thanks to Will McGillivray for the introduction music and to our writer, Jack McGee. Please join us again next time as we continue to explore the people, events and places behind Billy Joel's iconic song by discussing controversial book and soap opera, Peyton Place. For more episodes and information, you can follow NZ Pods, that's P-O-D-Z, on Instagram and Facebook, or you can visit our website, www.nzpods.com, that's nzpodz.com. 
Giving us reviews and ratings on your podcast service helps us share this project with more listeners, so please share your thoughts. We greatly appreciate your help in keeping this project going. Thanks again for listening, and please come back next time to hear more from Since the World's Been Turning.